0: Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is Eric Paley, managing partner of Founder Collective, an early stage fund begun by a team of entrepreneurs who themselves launched companies and led them through successful exits. Founder Collective is focused on helping the next generation of great entrepreneurs build important and lasting businesses through its refreshingly clear and often stated mission to be the most aligned fund for founders at the seed stage. Previously, Eric was the CEO and co-founder of Brontes, which was acquired by 3M in 2006. Founder Collective's prescient investments in companies including PillPack, SeatGeek, The Trade Desk, Periscope, BuzzFeed, Hotel Tonight, and Uber have made it one of the most prominent seed-sage funds in Boston and beyond. Fortune Magazine's influential term sheet recently identified Founder Collective as among a group of VC firms outside Silicon Valley who were moving investors beyond their strict belief in, quote, the the best-in-the-rest model in venture matching or beating the performance of a handful of storied West Coast firms to deliver some of the best-performing funds of the past decade from firms that didn't even exist before the dot-com bubble. Our conversation on the importance of founder-friendliness included Eric's perspective on the challenges facing portfolio star Uber right now, an exchange I think our regular listeners will find particularly interesting. In our second segment, Eric and I turn to what he calls the idea-myth. The belief that every great company finds its genesis in some flash of inspiration born in the mind of some genius entrepreneur. The reality and the core investment thesis of Eric's firm is that venture success tends to emerge from teams who deeply understand customer value creation, who have the talent and the will to persist in solving the seemingly endless string of mundane challenges that must be overcome to will a successful company into existence from nothing. It's a refreshing reminder of the importance of execution in a business that too often elevates strategy above all else and a view I very much share with him and his partners. Okay, before we get started here, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes Overcast or Pocket Cast, and please consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. We've really started the bowl rolling there, and I promise you it really helps us spread the word about what we're doing, and I would sincerely and personally appreciate the effort. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now, my conversation with Eric Paley. All right, Eric Paley, welcome to Actifio. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Very nice to have you. I appreciate you coming out on this crisp Monday morning to spend some time here and tell us a little bit about your your life story here. I'm honored to be on the show. So um, let's start at the beginning. Where were you? Where were you born, and where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island, uh,
1: and uh, my parents still live in the house we grew up in, so uh, I get back there from time to time.
0: What part of the island? Roslyn. Roslyn. Nassau County. Right. I, right I think of I was, all the Long Island guys as like big lax or like uh, big lax places. I think of some of the private schools. were right. We're big on that. Got it. But I was a public school kid. And did you, um, do you have siblings? I do. I have a twin sister and an older brother. And what was it like growing up there? Did you have a good experience in general or a nightmare? Or? I, I, <laughs> uh, it was good. I, you know,
1: it was, um, it was a town that put a big priority on education. So I even, you know, I was, uh, I was a public school kid, but I went to a, a really, uh, re- you know, just, it was a great experience. And what did, uh, what did your parents do? They were both effectively running small businesses in healthcare. Uh, my dad was, is, well, has recently retired as a doctor, and my mother is a psychotherapist.
0: Huh. were they you know in and out of the house a lot like was it is that are those two uh, medical disciplines that are driven by like emergency like calls at all hours kind of my, my dad
1: delivered babies uh, so he all hours i mean i'd wake up in the morning and and dad had been gone since 3 a, you know 3 a.m um so it's sort of all and running his own practice right so there was sort of no limit to when he might need to uh, be called into the hospital so we kind of uh, our schedule was dictated by his beeper i remember being on the way to a Mets game once with my with my brother and my dad, and having to turn around and head over to uh, North Shore Hospital. So, mm-hmm. but that that's what you know. That's what he did. He loved it. He you know he used to say to me, um, "You never really work when you love what you do." Yeah. And my mom was less emergency driven. I mean, if if it was an emergency for my mom, it was really truly emergency. She's had over time suicidal patients, but mostly um, uh, mostly not emergency driven. She really um, she actually works in eating disorders. Which, while being a very uh, emotionally challenging area of of uh, of therapy, um, you really get to see your patients get better. Hmm. So she could really actually watch her patients get better right. uh, in a very real, substantive way. Where'd you go to school? I went undergrad to Dartmouth College, and then uh, and then to Harvard Business School.
0: Was that a big deal um, going to Dartmouth, or was that expected? yeah? Uh,
1: well, you mean within the family? Yeah. or Well, yeah. my brother, my. Uh, um, <laughs> my brother went to Brown so you know it was sort of a, a similar and my sister went to Cornell right, right when I was going to school so I, I think probably my brother laid a path for us in a way of right. um, you know trying to be a, a, a good student and get into a, a great college and create a lot of opportunity
0: why'd you pick Dartmouth?
1: You know, there's this uh, famous line, by, I think it was Daniel Webster, it's a small school, but there are those who love it, during the very famous Supreme Court case about Dartmouth College that um, basically enabled contract law in many ways in the United States. And I, I think there, there, it, it is this sort of what a college should be. I think that actually it was Eisenhower who made that comment at an inauguration about what a college should be. Right? There was, it just has this idyllic, beautiful uh, sense, and I like that it was a university, not a college, which is... A distinction not a lot of people think about, but as an undergrad, the focus really was on undergrads. Uh, and it's an absolutely beautiful place. And yeah, and I've really, been to Hanover really many it. times. Yeah, so it's great, it was a great experience. What did you study there? I studied government, why hence quoting Daniel Webster. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> I like how
0: you um, s- snuck that yeah, in. Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, why did I study government? I thought I was gonna be a lawyer, I was pretty sure I was gonna be a lawyer, and um, you, you don't have to study cool. government to be a lawyer, but I thought it was a good I also just really liked it, I thought it was super interesting. Um, I always liked debate. I thought it was very related to sort of debla- debating the great issues. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I, I, enjoy, I actually really enjoyed studying government. Did
0: you, did you, um, so my perception of Dartmouth is kind of a party school, uh, yeah. particularly in the dead of winter. And, um, you know, were you sort of, you know, serious minded focus, like you're a very diligent person. Um, did, were you that or were, were you, like no,
1: I, a, I was pretty focused yeah. even as an undergrad, yeah. um, uh, there is a big party scene in Dartmouth. that wasn't in a fraternity. One of the things people don't know though is is the college is actually the 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 community is very open. So if you're not in a fraternity, you can always you can always go v- visit all your friends sure. there. And uh, there's free beer everywhere for undergrads. So or underage drinkers. Um, so it was <laughs> uh, it was I, I wasn't a heavy partier, but I was um, but I had a lot of friends who were. Right. So we had a lot of fun. But I was I was a pretty focused uh, undergrad. What did you do after school? So the first thing I did is I went into consulting, and I went to work at Monitor Group. Um, and I became pretty disenchanted with that very quickly. Oh, it's
0: funny. I I, I did that, too. I did a, I did my summer B-School thing uh, was at Monitor, and then okay. I, I, I accepted an offer but didn't did ever it. So what, what year
1: were you at Monitor?
0: Uh, 92. Okay. So it was a few years later. Um,
1: yeah, I was pretty disappointed. I actually think the consultancies do an amazing job of selling complete nonsense, to students, yeah. forget about to their clients, which might be true as well. But really, to students, right, where um, they present themselves as the great prestigious jobs, um, and yet I think overall, um, when you go there, you don't you don't really do very much of impact. You spend a lot of hours doing really low grade value stuff.
0: Right. So, uh, so what do you do to rectify that?
1: So it was uh, it was ninety eight, ninety nine. And I was living in New York City, and Silicon Alley was—which is what everyone called it back then—was taking off and um, had things delivered to us by Cosmo. And Sudo was this hot video streaming company, and uh, DoubleClick was uh, was um, bringing uh, monetization to media. I, and-
0: I remember it well. Did you, did you have a Panix
1: email account? I did not have a Panix email account, but I, but I was very much— um, inspired by everything going on around me in New York and I teamed up with my brother my older brother and my uh, uh, my cousin's husband who's my cousin of course but my um, who uh, and we started a web development shop um, doing design and, and application development. what was it called it is still actually they still run it it's called the abstract edge so that was 99 we started that you know we started off mostly creating marketing sites and i really quickly came to love application development and you know i was a government major who worked at monitor but there was no, as a consultant but there was no one else in our team to do product management yeah. so you know product managing a marketing website wasn't that fun for me but product managing a um, application like something that could actually do something was really fun for me um, so I, and, and, and it was sort of an epiphany that web software really was software, right? Like it was this enabling of access in all kinds of ways, with all th- things you could do. We were building, you know, was, I didn't love running a web development shop because of the difficulty of rinse and repeat and getting really good yep. in scaling it. Yep. But I loved it from the standpoint of we got involved in so many different applications, um, of, of just totally different flavors and the versatility of what you could do with the web became very obvious to me. I mean, it was obvious to me as a consumer, but it, but the idea that, you know, if we and our clients could think it up, we could build it was, uh, we built this really, really exciting, one of our first projects was this really exciting community website, uh, nonprofit website for the moms who marched on Washington for gun safety. Huh. It was the biggest... Um, I think it raised the most money on the web that year of any nonprofit. And it was just amazing you could use the web that way, yeah. right? And I know now it seems really tw- almost 20 years later, so obvious. Yeah. But back then, um, it wasn't as obvious. Uh, and it was, it was super exciting.
0: David Cancel and I talked, to, talked about that, that um, what people who missed it don't really realize was that you couldn't connect with like-minded people who weren't in your physical proximity before that. And so in those days, particularly, I think, in the late 90s, there was that sense of, like, it, it just made the world accessible in a way, like, that you could find, regardless of where they were geographically, you could find people who were passionate about whatever gun control or, and that sense of connection and, and it, that, that sense of possibility, it was, a, it was a really exciting time.
1: Yeah, it was, I, it, it, it really was early days of um, me getting excited that software was where I wanted to spend my, my career. Hmm.
0: So what was the so that that business is still a going concern? Yep. And so when did what was your decision to leave it?
1: If you ask my wife and I how we ended up in Boston, we have totally different stories for it. Um, We weren't married yet, but we 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 were together and we were in New York and um, and she was in law school in New York and I was deferring law school so that we could be together and I wasn't sure I wanted to go and um, but I was going to go and she was applying for federal clerkship. She was top of her class in NYU Law and they're really hard to get. And she was, because she was such a good student, it was, uh, she had a really good shot of being on the appellate court, which is not that, e- federal appellate court, which is not that easy to get. And they tell you at NYU to apply um, everywhere, because there's so few to get, you know, of these available. Sure. And she basically just said, well, we're we're going to be in Boston, so I'm applying to only the First Circuit. Uh, and they said, well, that's kind of crazy, It's like virtually no chance you're going to get it. Uh, and she got it, right? She, she got um she got a clerkship with Sandra Lynch on the First Circuit, and, um, and then I wasn't so sure I wanted to go to law school anymore, and I was running this company. And she, she said, well, um, you don't have to go to law school, but we're going to Boston, so figure out what you want to do when we get yeah, there. good um, and, and that had always been the plan. My partners knew I was going to be leaving. It, I I'd set up the company with that in mind, uh, spent three years there, uh, and, uh, and left and, and went to business school instead.
0: Did you meet your wife uh, in New York, or uh, we at met at college? School? We met at Dartmouth. She's a Dartmouth person too. Yeah, got it. She was a very focused Dartmouth student. Today. Yeah, no, it's uh, you guys uh, must have been a very focused couple. We <laughs> are. Um, all right, so uh, 20, you go 21 you, years together. You yeah. go really? Yeah. Good for you. Um, so, uh, what was your experience at business school like? Did you enjoy it? Uh, I I loved it. I, I think like people
1: naturally, for good reasons, probably on some level are are um, cynical of. Harvard Business School, if they're on the outside, I think on the inside, and you also think of it as like these very corporate types, bankers, consultants, and even, you know, even though, yes, there are a lot of bankers and consultants, what I would say is uh, it really is a great community. I mean, I met some extraordinary people, two of whom became my, my full-time business partners, two others that became part-time business partners with us, um, and it was an extraordinary group of people really committed to making the community special. Uh, And, you know, there's some funny things about HBS, like the fact that everyone applauds at the end of every class. And from the outside, if you were to write a cynical article about that, you'd talk about how self-congratulatory everyone is at Harvard Business School. And I took it a very different way, which was uh, it was one of these places where every day people tried to show up and really contribute. There's some fascinating little um, norms, right? Like when the person's hand goes up in class who never speaks, everyone else's hands shoot down so that they'll get called on. I mean, it's just some very interesting norms yeah. that I saw. And I think the you know the applauding at the end of the class was more about um, really encouraging everybody to, to put all their energy and enthusiasm into the experience of collaborating together in this community. Uh, and I thought that was really neat. So it's a tiny little example, but I, 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 I met some of the best people I've ever interacted with in my life. It was one of the best normative communities I've ever been a part of. Um, the problem was it was a sad day for entrepreneurship, right? It was, I got I arrived, um, my first week was 9-11. Um, the joke at the time was B2B means back to banking and B2C means back to consulting. Yeah. Um, and when I graduated in 03, uh, most people went back to the jobs they came from that they were trying to get out of because that was who was willing to hire them. Right. It was hard to find jobs and very, very few people were interested in entrepreneurship. It was sort of um, passe at the time. And I wanted to start another company, and so did Michael Rosenblum, and, uh, and we did.
0: What was the sequence? Did you want to start something and figure out what you wanted to start, or did you have the bug to go do something specific, and you go built a business to do that? So during the first week of school uh, at, a, at a social
1: event at John Harvard's, um, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, Shirley, and Jenna Kramer, now Jenna Rosenblum, were chatting uh, and they introduced us to each other, to Mike and I, to each other. And Mike had founded a company before business school, and I had founded a company before business school, and it was, again, the, the complete nadir of entrepreneurship, miserable period where everything had gone bust. And uh, we always both tell this story. Nobody remembers who said what, um, but uh, which one of us said, said this. But uh, the question was asked, would you do it again? And the other person responded, only if the stars aligned. That was the first week of school we had this conversation. Um, And so we weren't going to, you know, it wasn't, you know, come hell or high water, I'm starting another company. But we were both, uh, and I think he felt the same way, we were both looking for opportunity. And at a certain point, we started looking for opportunity together. So um, by the end of our first year, we were looking for opportunity together. We had a concept that we got interested in. The beginning of our second year, um, we went to the, at the time, the MIT 50K. Now it's 100K. Uh, business plan competition mixer at the beginning of the year, and you wear these tags with a dot on it. One dot means, like a blue dot means, I have an idea, I'm looking for a team. And a red dot means, I know how to build stuff, but I don't know, what, I don't have a, uh, an idea. And like a green dot, I don't remember all the dots. Very, very MIT. And, very MIT. And we're walking around with the, I have an idea, I'm trying to build a team thing. And we meet uh, this guy who uh, listens, and we're trying to validate this idea technologically. How hard would it be to build Um, and we meet this guy, he seems like a grad student and he listens to what we're talking about. He goes, yeah, you could build that, that, that would work. It's not that hard. He's like, but what I'm doing is much more interesting. So we said, well, what are you doing? And he said, you should come to my lab and I'll show you what I'm doing. And we thought it was a little bit pretentious. He called it his lab. Turned out he was senior faculty in mechanical engineering and it was actually, he was the head of that lab. Um, but Doug didn't look at it. His name's Doug Hart. And we went to his lab to see what he was building, and he couldn't show us anything, right? So it was hypothetical, right? Um, in fact, what he could show us, to the extent he could show it to us, many people have done all over the place with 3D imaging, right? It was 3D related. But Doug was extremely creative, and his team, Janusz Rohai, and, and he had two grad students, they they were working on some novel ideas around 3D imaging. Uh, again, none of which we could appreciate truly in the moment because there wasn't anything we could see. Sure. Uh, and I remember them showing us poster boards, uh, trying to explain this concept to us of the rotating aperture and the sparse array image correlation. And I think Micah and my analysis was, um, I don't know if this will work or not, or whether it's really novel or not novel, but we've got this class with Joe Lassiter where we're supposed to find a project to work on, and we're going to work on what we were thinking about doing. But it'd be interesting to work with these guys on this. So it really was a class project uh, in the fall of our second year of business school, uh, and that ultimately turned into Brontes Technologies.
0: Did, did you know what things you were going to be digital imaging in the early days? Or did you no, figure that out later? It's,
1: it's the right question. Yeah. So w- part of our job was to try to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. And and Doug, you know, he would tell you, everybody wants this. Uh, every day there's somebody new coming into this lab who w- has an idea of what to do with yeah. it. So we started meeting with all those people. turned out... Um, A lot of people wanted to do things that it couldn't obviously do. A lot of people wanted it to be versatile in ways it couldn't be versatile. Um, We looked at 40 applications for the technology. Started off um, thinking we'd go down the thread when we were in the business plan. We were runners up in both the HBS and the MIT business plan competitions, looking at industrial machine vision. So using 3D cameras and computers to largely um, do quality control of parts. we quickly lost enthusiasm for that market for a whole bunch of reasons. We really saw it as a sea of niches. And the problem we'd have is we'd bring stuff back to the lab and say, can you image this? And Doug would look at it and go, ooh, it's shiny. Or he'd look at it and go, wow, that's black. Or he'd say, it's kind of transparent, right? Everything we would want to image had its own flaw, difficulties right. of imaging. It was also application-specific, right? Getting the imaging to work was so application-specific. So eventually, we we really um, got focused on finding a single application that was repeatable over and over again because everything else was going to be too application-specific in terms of the setup. Um, and Doug will tell you, we chose the hardest possible application for the technology, but at least if we could get it to work, it had a lot of value.
0: Yeah. You know, this is the classic solution in search of a problem, you know, model. Yep. Um, it's, it's one of the huge challenges... And, and one of the
1: reasons most universities actually commercial commercialize, at the end of the day, not that much, right. is um, there's a lot of tech, but not necessarily focused on solving a problem. And then once you find the problem you want to solve, this was true of Brontes, very often you don't use any of the tech. So we licensed from MIT, and we spent a lot of money on that license. We never actually put into practice any of the IP that came out of MIT, but we had Yanis Rohai, who was our chief scientist, who... Basically, he spent four years exploring all these concepts without an application focus. Right, and when he had an application focus, he could actually apply his learnings and his thought process and his research with Doug Hart's support as an advisor um, towards solving
0: a problem. So, what was that application for people who don't know? I,
1: you know, I mentioned both my parents were in healthcare. I had no interest whatsoever of doing anything in um, healthcare at all. Um, I could never imagine myself walking the floors of the trade shows I'd be walking once we uh, once we figured out the application. Yeah. But the application was dentistry, right? What we realized was dentistry was the largest remaining cottage industry in the world. Everything is produced by hand by an artisan. And I'm talking mostly about crowns, which is the largest application in dentistry, but crowns, bridges, implants, orthodontia, dentures, this is a pretty long list, And uh, they're mostly created by dental labs, and they're fitted at the last minute by a dentist. And the second a dentist takes a drill to fit something into your mouth, um, it doesn't fit. So getting the customers to try it was actually a very low bar. So one of the things I tell a lot of entrepreneurs is if they're doing something B2B, and the problem is reasonably well understood, it should feel like the cure to cancer in their space, right? So the dentist knew impressions were a huge pain. They knew their patients didn't like it. They knew that they had all this rework with the lab, touch-up, all this um, last-minute fitting. They, they, there was a real problem there, and, they, and right. the problem was felt pretty acutely. Um, so they were excited to try it. The technology, once we got it to work, which took a lot of time, and there was a lot of drama involved in that, um, and a lot of doubt with our VCs and um, leadership challenges, all kinds of things, uh, vendors going out of business, you know, all the stuff that's the real grit of building companies. Yeah. Uh, finally, we had this thing working, but the learning curve was pretty dramatic. So we were introducing something that the dentist was very eager to get their hands on, and then they'd start working with it. And, you know, it took them a long time to learn how to do even a modestly decent dental impression, but they knew how to do it already. And now doing a scan was a whole new technique. And it turned out it was a technique that our engineers were exceptionally good at because it was a lot like, partially because they designed it and partially because it's a lot like playing a video game. But it was not necessarily a technique that the dentists were very, um, had good analogs to or understood extremely well. And so that training curve was really one of the big challenges. The only thing we sold by 2006 was the company. <laughs> <laughs> so we hadn't sold any product when we sold the company. So we were pre market uh, with a beta product that was mostly working uh, in dentist offices, yeah. but wasn't completely working yet. Uh, and we got into a, we had a bidding war with five of the largest companies in our industry trying to buy the company, um, and ultimately sold it to three M in in October of two thousand six. And you know there were some great things about three M. They were the people we liked the most. They were the people we thought were the most forward thinking in our industry, and I think that was really turned out to be true. They wanted us to go run with the business. Um, politics is a way of creeping in over time. It's hard to completely keep it out. Um, but they really did give us a lot of autonomy in the autonomy in the early days. Um and overall, I, I'd say it was a very, very good acquisition um, from the uh, experience of the team. When I left two and a half years after the acquisition, twenty eight of thirty two people who were there at the acquisition were still there.
0: So the pivot from you know entrepreneurship to the investing side happened in kind of a unique way for you and and for you, you know for your whole team there. Uh, walk us through that
1: process. So the, the part of the Bronte story that is very important that I didn't get a chance to talk about is that our first check came from a business school classmate who had been an unbelievably successful entrepreneur before business school. A guy, it was basically the Steve Case of, of the Southern Hemisphere, right? He had started the largest ISP in the Southern Hemisphere. His name is David Frankel. And uh, this this ends up becoming a very important part of the story. We never would have gotten into business without David Frankel. Nobody was funding MBA graduates in 2003 sure. to start businesses. I, I think I was the only venture-backed CEO to come out of HBS that year. And, and just by basic comparison, I don't have real numbers, but it's probably 10 to 20 a year now. But nobody was doing that back then. Sure. It's just such a bad time. And David put us in business. He wrote the check, right? So he's talking about angels today. Even back then, there are a lot of angels write $10,000 or twenty five, dollars or $50,000 checks and you hope to get some good advice over time, or the really good ones will write that small check, but they'll try to rally some more dollars in support. Dave wrote checks that put people in business. He wrote real substantive checks, and he put us in business. And he did that for a handful of people, you know, double digits um, over a period of time. And at a certain point after we sold Brontes, and Dave made 10x on his investment at Brontes, we started doing it together. And he would write checks that were... 50 times bigger than the check I would, or Micah would write or I would write or Chris Dixon would write, who was another uh, entrepreneur who was doing this with us. We were all business school classmates and friends. And, um, and, and Dave wrote the first check into SiteAdvisor, Advisor, Chris's company uh, that came a couple years after business school, after he left Bessemer. Um, and so uh, I was at 3M still. Uh, I started thinking about transitioning. I had offers to join a couple of venture funds I went to visit Dave in South Africa. He was living. He was doing all this from South Africa. We were collaborating because he needed some help on the ground from friends in America, in the U.S. Because most of the companies were here. And I went with my wife to South Africa, and uh, and we went on uh, around, you know, Cape Town and otherwise with Dave. And Dave was talking about coming back to the states and um, trying to figure out the right context. You know, what would he do and what would it look like? And be doing this all very individually. Um and I was thinking about and talking to him about taking one of these VC gigs and he asked me whether I would contemplate starting a venture fund with him. Um and you know it sounds kind of easier now than it did back then. It didn't seem that easy back How then. How hard can it be? Yeah, March exactly. How hard could it's a good it's a good title for a podcast. Anyway, so March of 2008, um the world's about to fall off a cliff, but we didn't know that yet. Uh And we're up on Table Mountain, and and Dave is asking me whether uh, I would think about doing this with him, and he'd move to the States to do it. And so um, that summer, we did a bit of an exploratory trip to meet with some potential LPs, and we very quickly had commitments, I mean, big commitments. Basically, the fund was basically spoken for very quickly. Then the financial crisis hits. All those commitments go away. One of them stayed. But basically, the the whole thing was done. Now it wasn't done anymore. But David, we filed all the paperwork for Dave to move, and he was coming to the states. And uh, we were like, "Well, let's you know, let's see what happens." And so, in um, in January of 09, he came to the states. I left Three a. M at the end of two thousand eight, and we started fundraising. And the idea was to really build off the work we had been doing together, and primarily Dave had j- started of. How do you build something that is innately founder friendly? Because even though those that term rolls off the tongue now and people know it. Or think about it a lot it's not how venture was and I had pretty good VCs and I would actually say they weren't that founder friendly um, some more than others but uh, it just wasn't the priority right the first conversation every VC would ask you when you were a young entrepreneur back then was under what circumstances would you think about turning over your company to a, a real CEO that was every conversation every VC wanted to yeah. have with every young entrepreneur and um, and Dave had been the ideal angel in my view right? The perfect angel. Um, and the idea was, how do you create a fund that institutionalizes that? And so the mission was born back then and still exists today. And everyone on the team knows it word for word, which is to be the most aligned fund for founders at the seed stage. So we, you know, we're very proud of the companies we're investors in um, across the board. And some of those have become pretty notable, either here in Boston or California, or New York. But, you know, we're investors in. The Trade Desk, which went public this past year and is worth over a billion and a half dollars today, We're, and I've been on the board from the start of that company, Uber, BuzzFeed, Coupon, Cruise Automation. Those are five companies that are either currently valued or have exited for over a billion dollars. We've only been doing this eight years. PillPack here in Boston, d and Company in New York, um, Hotel Tonight. We're really, really proud of this portfolio. Um, but what I would say is we're not very thematic in the way we think about this. Again, I think, again, thematic really drives off this notion of ideas. I think people want, VCs like the idea of being a big thinker. They want to be ahead of on the trend, the idea. We just don't see the world that way. So the way we see the world is we see it in use cases and people. So are we inspired by this entrepreneur? Does this entrepreneur get us really, really excited about what they're, what they're doing? Are they all over it? which tells us a lot about how they'd execute. And what I mean by that is they like talking about the hard parts. They want to dig deep on the hard parts. They don't want to just sell the big idea. They want to sell the use cases on the ground and why that matters to the customer and how they really bring value to the customer and what those trade-offs are in the decision the customer is going to make to use their product. Because that's all they're thinking about. It's all they care about is figuring those things out. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs come in naturally defensive. They don't want to talk about the hard parts of their business. I think I might have been that way to a certain degree um, because those things put them on the defensive, make them uncomfortable. And I think the great entrepreneurs, that's actually what they want to talk about because those are all the execution-focused problems and questions and challenges of their business. It's the stuff they wake up every single morning, go to bed every night talking about. So when you start asking them about it, they love it. And so we, we have a very engaged approach to try and understand a company. And what we're not really doing is trying and understand whether Bitcoin is important or not important we're trying to understand is if it was Bitcoin, which we haven't really invested much there, but is there some use case here that really matters to the customer? And how thoughtful is the entrepreneur in really um, studying and understanding and engaging in that use case? What are the challenges? How are they going to overcome it? How how have they thought about overcoming, not how have I thought about overcoming it? Are they 10 steps ahead of us in their thought process? So, you know, Jeff Green approached us from the trade desk when we first invested. We invested before his co-founder joined the company. And he wanted to um, introduce a new company in programmatic advertising. There already were six well-established DSPs, um, demand-side platforms, for programmatic advertising Mm -hmm. in that moment that, that had raised a bunch of money already. But Jeff had a very different view of how to do it and was obsessed about why what they were doing was wrong and why it wouldn't work and what would work. And he had spent his career in this space. He started as an ad buyer, built the first exchange that... You know, all these DSPs were built on exchanges. He built the first exchange that existed in advertising technology called Ad, Ad ECN, sold it to Microsoft. Um, and he had a very, very different view. And he has raised the least money of anyone in that industry um, and is both, by percentage, the most profitable and the fastest-growing company, having, and he's public, having raised the least money. Why? Well, he was pretty obsessed about a different
0: point of view of how to build that business. And so that, that's what we're looking for. Is this your view or you, you guys have a, have, have a long standing personal relationship and uh, your partnership is sort of intriguing to me, just the dynamics of it. And uh, it just seems like you guys are friends. I mean, and that you get now, along.
1: The it. three of us are best friends. You know, we started with me and Dave and I told that story. But of course, Micah ends up joining us uh, after he leaves Bronte, helps start a company called Sample 6, which we invested in and then joins us full time. So it's the three of us full time as the partners. And we have a great team around us that I could go into detail on. And, yeah. um, and we are, we're three really, really close friends uh, who disagree all the time. Um, we drive off conviction as a fund. So what I'm much more interested in when we're debating a company that I'm not excited about, but let's say Dave is, Dave is a different style of what gets them excited, although a lot of these tenants are key yeah. to driving all of our excitement. Um, and it, if it really push comes to shove, and I say, Dave, I just don't feel this one, I, I don't like it, here's why. And he's hearing me and he's engaging with me on that. And then at the end of it, he says, but I still really want to do this investment. I'm like, good. That's the best possible scenario for you to want to invest in a company, which is despite all my pushback and I guess the fear that I might say I told you so at some point, which we don't do, but the, you know, that element, you still love it. That's, that's the kind of deals I want to do. Not, not because everyone's 100% in agreement, this is great. I don't think any of our best deals were ones that everyone was necessarily in agreement on. Um, but because somebody has really, really strong, you know, excitement about it, energy about it is charged up and they're willing to hear what everyone else's concerns are. And yet at the end of it, they're still, they still want to do it. Hmm. And I think that really largely comes down to belief in the entrepreneur and use cases
0: we all believe in. In the culture of your partnership, is it a greater sin to do a bad deal or to miss out on a great one? Um...
1: I know it sounds funny. I would actually say neither. I would say the great sin would be um, to walk away from things you're genuinely passionate about, or falsely find passion because you're you feel like you're supposed to. I think those are the real error, error modes of our business. Right. I think the we're gonna we're gonna miss great ones. My list is starting to get really long. Um, in fact, it's not bad to have a great list there because it means you got to see them.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but uh, we're gonna miss great ones, and and. We're going to do a lot of things that don't end up returning for us. I would never say they're a waste of time. We build great relationships along the way. We get to know entrepreneurs. Some of those entrepreneurs go on to start other things that become interesting companies um, or interact with us in other ways. Or frankly, we just value the friendship and the relationships. Um, But I think the real real danger in this industry, companies are made, they're not born. So the real danger in this industry is you look at something in the early days and you don't do it and it becomes a great company and you think, oh, I could have been an investor in that. And yeah, maybe passively. Um, you could have rode that whole horse and done well. But w- we pride ourselves in playing a role in trying to really help these businesses and not sort of, it was, it had DNA and then it became a great company. We just write a check and we wake up five years later and it's a great company. And boy, were we stupid not to do that deal. Um, we really look at that another way. The struggle of the company is part of something we should be contributing to and thinking about. And so it's it's a little too shallow. I think to think that um, this is just a false negatives, false positives, investor choice, right, as opposed to a contributor that gets to see something in a moment in time and things change all along the way. And frankly, we, you know, butterfly effect, maybe we would have changed things in a bad way right. in our contributions to a business, hopefully not. Um, or things that you know, went badly. Maybe we do deserve some of the, um, you know, we contributed some of the decisions or some of the things that didn't help it become, maybe we interviewed the person who would have been majorly impactful to the company and we had reservations and told the the company not to move forward on that hire. Or, right. or So I think we're participants in trying to help these companies become important and great. We're not just passively, we write a check at the beginning, we'll see what the outcome is. So we're trying to get, obsessed about oh we missed that one or why do we do that deal that became a total disaster Um, you're gonna do things that don't work out we're investing at a very early stage it's part of it my I'm very very proud of the returns we have but our loss factors are very real too we don't it's not like everything we touch turns to gold we're very lucky some of it turns to gold but I think the dangerous thing is you know you you don't want to do investments because other people are excited about them you have to have that true innate passion about it because if it goes wrong, at least you know why you did it. Yeah. And if if it goes right, I know it sounds funny, but the only way to learn from it is because you know why you did it, not because you know the lesson you take from it is I just like to co invest with so and so. Right. With some investor who's really smart. I I don't think that's a good, a good way to be in this business. Right. So finding your own personal inner compass is a huge. To us, that's the journey. It's an enjoyable journey, but it, it's the hard. It's hard. We call it. The whole partnership has two dynamics. The compass, which is your own sort of personal journey of finding what you believe in. And then the dialogue, which you don't want to be too easily mm-hmm. influenced. Um, but you also want those data points. You yeah. want the dialogue. You want to learn from each other. You're like, why does Micah think this is such a bad investment and I'm so excited about it? Why is that? We're right. looking back at things we didn't do and saying, what could we have gleaned in this deal, that in this opportunity, that might have made us think about it differently um but if you're not doing that from a very like truly genuine place then it's just kind of academic exercise
0: so one of the companies that worked out um is uber i have to ask you about uber given what's happening there right now you know how do you look at the transition that they're going through right now or or are about to go through through the lens of founder friendly you know that that um there's a certain skill set required to create something from zero and get it to a certain place, and and particularly as companies become successful, the demands on management, the the culture of leadership, you know, those things need to shift. It's a that's a big skill footprint to ask of a single person. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on on what they're going through now, and and um, you know, what insight do you have on on you know what they need to do next? Yeah. So I I think
1: first and foremost. We consider ourselves extended parts of every family of every company we're a part of, and obviously Uber is hurting at a certain level right now, and I, I don't think it's helpful for their investors to go into public critique mode. What I, what I will say is um, it's important to take responsibility for things that, uh, that um, help build communities people want to be a part of, um, products that people want to engage uh, experiences that affect people's lives that should be deepening and enriching experiences you have to own that sure. and I think um, the leadership at Uber is taking a very like deep look right now in the mirror of how do we own that and maybe some of the things we've done historically that have helped us succeed have to change over time maybe some of those were ill-advised things maybe some of those were the right things but they have to evolve over time um, and the other thing is the bigger your community gets, um, the the more law of large numbers catches up with you. Um, And, you know, even at it's very proud of the community we had, but at times it'd be like, how is this, like, who imagined X, Y, and Z would ever happen at a company at 72 people? But it turns out, 72 people, you have some statistical size that um, things start to happen, right, of different sorts. That doesn't mean they don't have to, we didn't have to own it, they didn't have to own it. I think the way you own it is, by um, constantly um, taking a hard look at your values and making sure that as a community you're taking those values seriously. One of the things I didn't like about Monitor is there was this great espouse theory of values and there really was not an actual practice, in my view, that was consistent with the espouse theory. Companies have to work very hard to bring the actual practice into line with the espouse theory. And I think, you know, credit to Uber, um, despite some of the very fair critiques anyone can have right now and things that I'm not happy to see. But credit to Uber that um, it's not sitting around right now saying none of this matters or we don't care or, um, you know, the dialogue right now is there's a problem. Now, what they do about it, they have to own that, right? And people will be cynical about it, sure, and say they're just saying that to appease everybody. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to be cynical if you're at the company, too, if you choose to be. I think the challenge is... Uber has done so much good that doesn't get talked about anymore. It's it's enabled cities and, frankly, safety in a way people don't talk about anymore. I truly believe it is the single safest form of transportation, largely because everything's traceable. right? There's no other form of transportation where, you know, ground transportation or, or rail or where everything's traceable right. in the way it is on Uber. And so... Um, and it's it has created the ability to get around in a way you could never before. So, you know, just think about being stuck on a dangerous street corner somewhere and calling a taxi service in a city that doesn't have good taxi service where the subway closes at midnight right. and um, and having somebody say, "Yeah, yeah, we'll get you somebody there in 20 minutes." Right? And 20 becomes 30 and 30 becomes 40 and you call again and they say, "Oh yeah, uh, yeah, they're on their way, don't worry." Yeah. Right? And and that's completely changed and I, so um, not to mention drunk driving. I know so many people who just don't drive when they go out anymore. Sure. So I think there's a lot of good that isn't getting talked about because of um, a lot of a lot of elements that the company needed to step up to, should have stepped up to earlier, is trying to step up to now. And then the question will be, what actual actions do they take to, to try to address these things? It's a lousy note to end on. I, w- I won't end on that. What I, I would uh, say no. is, there are so many great cultures, right? I mean, even just the broad startup communities that we play in, the amount of give, pay it forward, the amount of contribution to each other, the amount that you and I have never worked together and, and directly. And yet I've always found you to be so incredibly open to helping us any way you can. And I hope likewise, anything that you feel like we can do within, you know, you're, you're not afraid to ask. And I just think there's, that, that doesn't happen in every industry. And there's so much good that's going on in the broader tech community. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be addressing the problems. You know, gender equality broadly, harassment where it exists. I mean, it does exist in many places and needs to be dealt with. Um, You know, racial diversity in our industry, um, broadly access. There are a lot of real problems. And yet what I would really say is I'm a very proud member of these tech ecosystems, very proud of the cultures of many of our companies that are incredibly inviting True meritocracies, great places to work. Um there's a reason I've spent my career doing this stuff, and i and I love it. And it starts with founder collective and the and the values we've put out there um, and the way we interact with our founders and hope that that contributes to the ecosystem and and ripples in some ways um to help create more and more great
0: companies and communities. One of the things that I believe I have a handful of beliefs that I've codified into, you know the laws of Mike Triano or whatever. Uh, but one of them is that that you know your weakness is is usually the downside of your strength, and I think that's true of people. I think it's true of companies, and I think it's true of industries. And that collegiality, that sense of tribal belonging and support, and um, which I think is such a strength of the industry. You know, I, I read a piece; it was making the assertion that that the single biggest impediment to um, gender and cultural diversity in venture. Was really the employee referral program that, if you look at a cost per hire basis, um, the way that our universe expands is by people bringing in people like them, and and how that was that was a challenge, and and so I, I view that as as absolutely a downside of the strength that you you so well articulated there. What I'm encouraged by is now there is proactive effort um, to encourage, you know, we're doing this hack diversity thing as part of NEVCA and, um, and, and all over you see these initiatives underway to recognize this as a problem and go tackle it. Um, so I feel like, you know, you got to exert some energy to manage the downside of your strengths. And, and I see that happening now in a way that, you know, certainly over the course of my career, I've never seen before. I've never seen actual steps being taken. Uh, as
1: opposed to just hand
0: wringing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And
1: I think that's the question, just going back to your question to I me, mean, that's the question at Uber right now, is what are the steps that will be taken to address this? Yeah. First thing, I mean, I always say, everyone, I, it's always said, right? First thing is admitting you have a problem. Sure. Okay, yeah. emission seems to be out there now, and then and now what?
0: For our second segment, Eric and I turn to what he calls the idea myth, the belief that every great company finds its genesis in some dorm room epiphany or bar napkin scribble. The danger of this all too persistent notion, in Eric's view, is that it shifts focus away from what it really takes to build a great business from zero, which is the intense focus, persistent effort, and creative problem solving only great teams can bring to bear, rather than some flash of inspiration born in the mind of some genius entrepreneur.
1: Ideas are vastly, vastly overrated, right? Like, unbelievably overrated. The, there's such a misconception that entrepreneurship's about ideas, right? Like, Actifio was the first to have the idea of, of storage, right? Or, yeah. like, you know, Bronte's, you know, so somebody asked me at a major opinion leader conference after we got acquired that 3M had organized, um, how did I present it? How did you come up with this idea for Bronte's? And I said, you know, if you haven't met him yet, I want to introduce you to this man in the front row. His name is Francois Duray. Francois Duray was in his 70s. Um, Francois Duray, in 1971, wrote his PhD thesis about 3D scanning the mouth and enabling mass customization in dentistry in 1971. said, I won't tell you how old I was, but I wasn't born yet. <laughs> right? So, you know, it, it wasn't so much that it was some kind of novel new idea. It was that um, we believed we could do it. That it was a real problem, the use case mattered, um, and then we put the talent and the team together to actually make it possible. And it's actually all that work, right? So you think of the great startups at our to- of our time. You know, some of them in our you know that I know very well because they're in our portfolio. Uh, Uber wasn't the first that tried to do mobile deployed car services. Dropbox basically is not that different from Fetch, which was founded I think in the eighties at Dartmouth College. Um, but you know, it's much more elegant experience. There's so many insights that go so beyond just, you know, cloud storage. Right. Um, Airbnb. I don't know. I bought. I rented off VRBO years before Airbnb sure. was in existence. And were there some insights into each of these companies that made them very special? Absolutely. But there wasn't like an idea. I think that's like way too simplistic. I wrote a piece a while back called "The Idea Myth" uh, about the computer I bought on auction on the internet in 1995 before eBay was founded. Why did those guys lose? And eBay won, right? And so I just am such a believer in the 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. The inspiration is important because, one, you should work on things that are important to you and problems that people care about. So you gotta pick good problems, you gotta pick things that matter to you, but they become your reason for being. Like, what's the reason that you're willing to put all that perspiration into building something of value? Um, and hopefully you're feeding not just off your own craziness, but also off the fact that people also care about what it is you're doing. And then the other big, so one big learning is that it's all the stuff in between. Like I'll tell the story of Brontes, and what we skip is, you know, or I quickly mention, right, like the bankruptcy of our sensor vendor and that needing to find somebody else who could build this yeah. sensor yeah. for us. Um, the leaded lenses that showed up from China um, that were none, none of which were supposed to be leaded and took us months to figure out what was wrong with them. In our first test system, that didn't work at all. That we'd waited, I think, twelve months to get those lenses in the first place. Yeah. Um, you know, tra- transitions with leader core leadership in in the building of the product that was really really painful and really hard. Um, all the financing difficulty that we had. Um, it's just so hard, right? Like this is the stuff that makes or breaks. So so the other thing I'd say, and it's in that same very much spirit, is. There are a lot of people who say only hire A players. And I've written about this too. The piece I wrote was called The Curve of Talent. I think that's great inflation. I think if you think you're only hiring A players, because you don't even know what an A player looks like. A players are so rare that the idea that you'd hire a team of, you know, we sold the company, we had a great team, 32 people. Oh, they were all A players. That's nonsense. You, you, you wouldn't be able to recognize an A player if you really believe that. Right. What well, you're really hoping for, so the curve I think is a real curve, which is like A is... Um, among the best in the world at what they're doing, innovating on what they're doing every day. And everyone should aspire to that. You should be trying to create a culture that turns more people into A players. What you're really mostly after is is B players, right? It doesn't sound very flattering, but like people who can independently do their job, just like know how to do whatever that craft is reasonably well. It's so hard to find those people. And and instead, startups fail because they hire a lot of C players, which sounds so obvious. Oh, don't hire C. C is actually not that bad. C is like... You know, I, I know how to do marketing, sort of. I just need a bunch of guidance, right? Like, maybe I'm not like moving the metrics the way everybody wants me to, but with some help, maybe somebody can get sure. me there. Yeah. And, then the hard, and then the Fs are easy. You know they're bad at their job. You get rid of them. Yeah. And the hard part about the Cs is, because they're moving the ball forward, they're really hard to um, think about taking out of your organization. They can move the ball forward. Right. But the challenge is getting just enough A players that you really can do something world class and then enough B players that enough people can just every day show up and do a really, really good job. Um, and then not getting so weighed down by the people who need so much help um, to just keep the ball moving forward. And yet you're afraid to transition those people because, um, and, and potentially get an a, be lucky enough to get an A player in replacement, but because you're, you're gonna be, it's a setback to lose that person. And so everyone grade inflates. They build their team, you know, um, complaining about the C players they call Bs. And the B players, they pretend are A's. And you just can't, you can't do anything world class if you don't get that quality of team that can deliver on that. And it's, and, and it's, I think everyone says recruiting is hard. And yet it's actually still so underestimated how hard it is to get people who can, I mean, you can build a great product. And if you don't find somebody who really knows how to get it to its target customer, it doesn't matter that you built a great product. Yeah. Right? And I, I think that's tragic. It takes all of that you have to build a really, really good multi multidisciplinary team, yeah you know and I, if we didn't have that we couldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. It, it wasn't just oh, you know they spun some cool technology out of MIT and they found a good application, and the rest was history
0: yeah yeah, you had to overcome novel problems, um, practical problems in the real world
1: really, really hard problems.
0: you know I always love the filmmaking analogy to business making you know that that um you know, that a good VC is sort of like a producer where you're, you have a script and and you attach a director to it and you're looking for, you know, uh, you, you get the right people. You bring together the financing, you get the distribution and and you make a movie and some subset of movies are actually good and they make money and whatever. And and so that, um, you know, one of my favorite directors, this guy Mike Nichols, he talks about how, you know, 80 percent of, of directing a film is casting it. And, and I just always thought that, that analogy, even that aspect of the analogy holds up very much in the startup world. So
1: I use this one all the time. And the example, and I use it to, to bash this, this idea myth, right, that it's all about the idea. Yeah. So if I came to you and pitched you this idea and I said, I have this great idea for a movie. It's going to be amazing. It's this great, you know, bigly movie, right? Um, uh, it's going to be about uh, a slow thinker, you know, a, a, a not a very bright guy. And he's going to go through, but he's very sweet. And he's going to go through history having interesting events happen to him, and meeting interesting people. And mostly he's going to be sitting on a bench. Is that going to be a good movie? Right? And and the answer is, like, I don't know. Like, I, most likely not. You know, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be a terrible movie. Yeah. You can easily make a terrible movie. It sounds like a terrible movie. Yeah. But you you get, right, I think Spielberg directed, right? You get Spielberg Zemeckis. to direct, Zemeckis directed. You get Tom Hanks to star in it. Yeah. You get this unbelievable 60s and 70s soundtrack. You write a Beautiful story, right? Every little detail of it, including some like pretty poetic lines along the way that people still cite to this day. And Forrest Gump wins the Academy Award.
0: You know, I would say that that is the most poorly pitched movie ever, and that's the other thing that I think uh, Maybe my pitch was lousy. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: That that, um, and, and this is part of it too. That I would say, well, what if I said, you know, I'm going to make a movie about how character is the real driver of destiny not to, not intellect and not whatever but it's a movie about someone who's very high character, and he lacks almost every other thing, every advantage in life, every intellectual thing. But in the end, he's a he's a mover of destiny, you know, at the level of nations and whatever, and like wow, you know, like that. But but, but I think it's great. So um, it's a
1: much better pitch for the movie. Yeah. And
0: this is true of startups too. People come in and, and they end up
1: making great startups and they sure. pitch me and they do a lousy job pitching. And right. there are other people who come in they do this That's masterful the norm. job pitching. Yeah. Uh, and they don't do anything with their startup. Yeah. And I think that's a good example too because it's still pretty easy to think why that wouldn't turn out to be a good movie sure. even though that was very lovely in the way you presented. You could it.
0: execute that badly, no, no very, question. I mean, yeah. again,
1: yeah. 99 times out of 100, you'll execute that yeah. badly. And yeah. if Tom Hanks isn't starring in it yeah. and you choose Mel Gibson, it might be a pretty terrible doesn't movie.
0: Work. Well, there it is, folks. The only startup podcast you will hear this week hating on both ideas and Mel Gibson. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can it Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service, available instantly, anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.